I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're focusing on the R. Kelly case, explaining it for you, breaking it down from A to Z. Now, for the last couple of years, R. Kelly is called a jail cell in the notorious Metropolitan Detention Center, the MDC, in Brooklyn, home. He's been locked down without bail since being charged with federal sex trafficking here in New York, charges he denies. Allegations of sexually abusing underage girls are nothing new for the troubled Grammy-winning R&B superstar, but this New York case is different and could land him behind bars for life if the jury finds him guilty. Is R. Kelly being targeted by disgruntled groupies, as his defense attorney claims, or is he what prosecutors call him a sexual predator who used his celebrity status and connections to prey on vulnerable girls and women? We're breaking this all down for you now. For our panel joining me, Nina Ruhani. She's a Billboard R&B hip hop reporter. Nina, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. Also with us is Charles Tucker Jr. He's a criminal defense attorney and also a former sex crimes prosecutor. His firm is Tucker Moore Law Group, LLP. Charles, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Pleasure to be here, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense attorney and managing partner of Hamilton Clark, LLP. Uh, Phil, great to have you with us. Lisa, thanks for having me as always. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Nina, you have been in court every single day, pretty much throughout this Almost. trial. <laughs> Has anything surprised you? Because there are people who feel like we've heard everything we need to know about R. Kelly. Were there any things that surprised you? Hmm. I mean, I think there were a number of things that surprised me. Um, I would definitely say the approach that the defense is taking has been really interesting to watch unfold. I know that there were some last minute sort of switch ups in his defense, and I would, you know, attribute a little bit of that to to the changes in his defense. Um, so that's definitely been interesting to watch kind of how they're angling this and the approach that they took during opening statements and sort of throughout their cross examinations. Also, I mean, the allegations are just shocking so it's like you can hear them a million times but when you sit down in a courtroom and are hearing it like that's not the same as, as reading it in somebody's book or watching a tmz interview like these you know prosecutors and the defense are gonna critique every last detail so you know that whatever it is that they're telling on that stand there's a lot to back it up and so hearing sort of those uncut narratives it's been you know shocking to say the least and i've been i've been in court for fox five uh, for Fox 5 News uh, a number of days. And it's just, you'll be, we'll be taking notes, like wh what is this person who's on the stand saying? And then all of a sudden you hear a word and every single head in that reporters in the media overflow room is like, you know, goes right. Like, and we're in that room. So yeah. it's like, we can react. Whereas if you're in the courtroom, you can't. So you'll hear like audible reactions from reporters. And there was actually one day when they had the Kelly supporters in the room with the reporters. I remember which that. Which was super interesting to kind of hear them behind us and how they're reacting and kind of trying to see how we're, it's, it's crazy. No, it's definitely crazy. Charles, Charles Tucker Jr., as a former sex crimes prosecutor, and you also were involved in a, a civil case with one of the accusers, the, what is this case really all about? Well, I think it's a skilled way and probably pretty crafty way for a prosecutor to try to hold R. Kelly accountable uh, for these sexual acts uh, against these women. Uh, the Man Act in itself, I mean, was a, it's an old statute created back in 1910 uh, for the purposes of, of preventing young women from being brought into prostitution. 
uh, and sex slavery. Um, so it, it's a very interesting way that they've kind of crafted this. Uh, and you know, to Nina's point, you know, to kind of see this all unfold, right, uh, is it, very interesting to say the least. Um, but it's an attempt at the government to hold him accountable in a court of law in front of a jury's peers to, you know, and to actually put on a case, a solid case that can actually withstand the, the standard, which is the highest standard uh, that we know, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and that's going to be a hard job to do. Phil, what about in terms, from the defense point of view, from the charges, you've been up against these federal prosecutors. Break that down for us. I mean, essentially, like Charles was saying, you know, R. Kelly is facing, um, you know, not just counts of uh, the Mann Act, but most essentially a racketeering count, right? And with respect to racketeering, we call, we call, I mean, a RICO, what we call RICO, right? Exactly. I was, I was just about to say, you took the words out of my mouth, Lisa. It, it, it's a RICO conspiracy type of act. A lot of what you see, a lot of the hip hop guys ultimately charged with, and they come in on the big federal indictments. That's essentially what they've charged R. Kelly with. And when, when Charles is ultimately saying that this is kind of like uniquely crafty on the government's behalf, it is in many respects, because we're so used to and accustomed to these RICO charges right. coming against mm -hmm. the mafia, coming against the Bloods or the Crips or big criminal enterprises and organizations. And what essentially the government is trying to do here is note that you know R. Kelly's pervasive ways over the years, for lack of a better way to put it, were not just something that were singularly a part of him, but an overarching enterprise, right? That he was bringing these girls in, not just by virtue of him, but by his bodyguards, by his managers, using others, right? Within the context of this conspiracy and this you know, enterprise to ultimately bring these girls to him is what gave them the means by which to try this very unique prosecution that yes, we're not generally accustomed to seeing when what we, those who have been following R. Kelly over the years have just believed to be just his thing with women and young right. women at times, right? But it's not just his thing at this point. The government is bringing this as an organizational criminal enterprise with R. Kelly at the top and you know a mission and an objective to bring these girls across state lines for the purposes of sexual activity. And to that end, that's where they found the nexus to be able to bring it in federal court as opposed to some of the state charges we've seen him face in the past. That, he, that he's beaten in the past. In a lot, yes. of, in right. a lot, a lot of instances, Phil. In, ter in terms of these specifics, because a lot of a lot of the accusers detailed the same kind of process, and under cross examination, one of them had one one of the days that was there in the in the courtroom admitted she's like, I could have left at any time. I could have. I had a phone. I could have walked out of the hotel. The police showed up in one instance at this hotel where she was at. I could have left. My parents, you know, sent me off with him with a blessing. One mother even writing a, a permission, you know, signing over custody of her 17-year-old daughter to go live with R. Kelly in, uh, in Chicago. It's just, I mean, are, are those the types of things that will create reasonable doubt for the jury? You know, Lisa, in the typical case, I think with which you would, you know, be accustomed to kind of seeing R. Kelly face charges under these circumstances, those could be very effective lines of cross. And sometimes, look, when you're in an uphill battle of a case, you work with what you can work with, right? So to the extent that you can get the, you know, the complainants and you know, these you know, witnesses that are testifying against R. Kelly to concede those things, hey, great, fine. You know, like make sure your client thinks that you're fighting for them and everything along those lines. But when we're boiling it back down to the fact that this is a racketeering case, right? And again, we're dealing with a bigger organizational conspiracy 
even to the extent that they could go home and even to the extent that, you know, they kind of came on their potentially own volition, it's somewhat helpful. But when we're listening to all of the facts and allegations that occur over the course of the years, and remember, even though we were talking about not necessarily having video uh, recordings of these things, what's one of the biggest things that has come out with respect to the case in terms of proving up some of the allegations? Herpes. Right. To the extent that you have a couple of the you know, girls that have testified to have been given an STD by R. Kelly, that slams right into the Man Act uh, you know, charges, which ultimately play right into the racketeering. And it proves up the fact that, you know, the sex was going on. Some of these girls were underage. Right. And, you know, that I think has been the most damning evidence. It has been something that the defense fought valiantly to try to keep out before the case started. But to the extent that it came in, it's corroborating, Lisa. So even if ultimately they could have left at some point, it doesn't take away the fact that they, you know, are alleged to have been trafficked in, used for these debaucherous, sexual, you know, perversive reasons. And that ultimately that underlies the indictment and can still ultimately underlie conviction in this matter. All right. When we, when we come back, we're going to find out, is there a statute of limitation? Because some of these allegations go back very, very far into the 1990s. We'll find out more with our panel when we come back. Yeah, yeah. What up, what up, what up? This is Styles Peter Ghost, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people only on Hot 97. Yeah, Ghost told you so. Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about the R. Kelly case, explaining it, breaking it down for you. And from A to Z, what are the charges? What are the allegations? What is the defense? What is this really all about? Joining me for this conversation, Nina Wuhani. She's the R&B and hip hop reporter for Billboard. Nina, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Also with us is Charles Tucker Jr. He's a criminal defense attorney, a partner with Tucker Moore Law Group, and also a former sex crimes prosecutor. Charles, great to have you with us. Thank you, Lisa. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense attorney, managing partner of Hamilton Clark LLP. Tried many federal cases here in the Eastern District and Southern District. Philip, great to have you with us. Great to be here, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Nina, in terms of R. Kelly, because people, you know, depending upon their generation, depending upon whether, you know, what stage of their life they were at when he was, you know, when he was just dominating the airwaves, even the, the, the hip hop airwaves, how big a star is R. Kelly or was R. Kelly in terms of his impact and the hits and, and yeah. all? Give us a sense of that. I mean, to put it simply, R. Kelly is, was an R&B god. I don't know how else to say it. I think that is the most blunt way to put it. Um, even, you know, we at Billboard named him the most successful R&B artist between 1985 and 2010 based off of the R&B and hip hop charts. Like, he killed the charts as an artist, um, you know, even after the early allegations, you know, you had uh, allegations in, in, in the two, early 2000s. And even as that sort of started to unfold, he still was was racking in the numbers. Like he had Step in the Name of Love, he had Ignition, he had Hotel with Cassidy, I'm a Flirt with Bow Wow, like all these hits that came afterwards. Um, you know, he was going on major tours alongside other really big artists. Um, and even up until recently, you know, he had some collaborations in the last decade with Ty Dolla Sign, Kelly Rowland, even Lady Gaga, Bieber. Um, and then if you want to get into him, which I won't, but if you want to get into him on the songwriting and sampling side, like that's a whole nother conversation. But he's, um, making money, he's making money off that side too, right? Still oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he's still making, his, his royalties are still rolling in. Whether he's actually getting access to them is another question, right? But, but the money is still coming in. 
Um, but, you know, you didn't really see people collectively turn against him until the 2019 documentary. Um, and that sort of forced people to sort of look at what was going on in a major way and it brought the public in. But before that, I mean, even if in the industry people were aware, because they likely were, nobody was really letting it stop them from working with him. So he was gone for a while. Phil, what what about the uh, what what about this at you know this groupie defense that the his, his attorneys you know that these were basically disgruntled groupies that they wanted to be around him and there was a kind of a recurring theme of people that wanted to be you know they were aspiring singers or they just wanted to be aspiring you know celebrities or entertainers or whatever what about that groupie defense? I mean, every major star, male or female, has super fans, has groupies, whatever you want to call it. Is every major star on trial for federal charges pertaining to abuse and human trafficking? You know, no, <laughs> they're not. Um, so I think it's it's sort of short-sighted to, to minimize it to just that. There's a lot of things that happen between possible lies of groupies to federal charges. Like, you have to think about all the in-between. Right. You know, there's a process like I think the defense is sort of catering with this sort of argument. They're catering to people who are members of the public, people who may not have a legal background, people who may not be in the court. Oh, definitely. definitely. Let, let me just yeah. take on it. So, so what, about, what about that? What about that groupie defense? I mean, the disgruntled groupies like, you know, they wanted to be around him. They wanted to be in his orbit. How valid is that? Because in the in, in some, you know, in the, in the public's mind, that's a legitimate, a legitimate thing. Right. I mean, I think it's the strongest angle that the defense ultimately has in this matter. Now, whether or not it, you know, pans out to be effective, you know, time will tell uh, probably sooner than later. But nevertheless, for the purposes of the case, you know, that essentially has to be the defense that, you know, there's no organization here. There's no enterprise with, you know, R. Kelly at the top, you know, being kind of this quasi uh, businessman that's, you know, in the business of, you know, bringing in women for these sexually debaucherous acts. That That's not what's going on here. It's just essentially R. Kelly is like, what? You know, he was just described to be he, from his 1993 to about 2007, his run was legendary, right? In the R&B world, in the music world, in the hip hop world. And to that end, he had fans, right? And to that end, he had women chasing after him. And to the extent that ultimately he had relations with those women, it doesn't turn those relationships, no matter what may have occurred throughout the process of them, into some criminal enterprise, right? As much as it was just him dealing with women that ultimately when things didn't pan out either with their careers, right? Or with whatever they ultimately wanted from him. Now, all of a sudden they're coming and saying, well, hey, it's not just that, you know, we had a relationship, he forced me into it, right? And, you know, playing into like the underlying allegations of the indictment is ultimately what the defense is saying that a lot of these witnesses are doing, but that in reality, those things never really happened. These were just individual one-off relationships mm -hmm. that just didn't go anywhere. Those people were resentful and mad about it. And here we are at trial, right? Like as a defense attorney, it would be malpractice to not go there. But again, I just don't know how effective ultimately it's going to pan out this time, right? There's as opposed to maybe that 2008 trial when it's not federal, when you're only dealing with, you know, a couple of witnesses, right? That can right. be, you know, potentially paid off or what have you. You can't do that in federal court. Um, and so we'll see how it plays out, Lisa. Charles, in, ter in terms of the age, because we, you know, in different states, there's different ages for what's a, considered an adult, what's considered a minor. Some of these accusers were 17 when they first in in encountered R. Kelly. There was a lot made about the age. There was the, the Aaliyah, you know, Aaliyah situation, which she was 15, I believe, at the time. Does that matter in terms of the federal law? 
Right. Would the federal statutes give different guidelines as to when uh, the statute would run on a particular charge? But, you know, to Philip's point, what's interesting here from the prosecution standpoint is that, you know, they could label them, you know, groupies, what have you. They're victims on the, on the government side, right? These women were preyed upon. And from the, from the racketeering uh, and conspiracy of it all, it's, it's part of his plan, his overall scheme of things. And, you know, when he talks about the, when you look at the medical implications, the long-term effects for these victims, right? Several of them, you know, that's not a groupie. You know, when someone is medically uh, uh, tainted as a result of sexual contact, that's not a groupie. You know, that someone needs to be held accountable. And, 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 and psychologically, too. Correct. You know, so it and that I think is is something that I would like to see, uh, you know, play itself out a little more, you know, because, you know, the the, the mental and the, the psychological impact could, could last for many, many years. Uh, and, you, you know, some of these women will never be made whole, no matter what happens uh, as a result of this case. And just to quickly add, sorry, to, to Philip's point about the sort of angle that the defense is using, even during opening statements, the, the attorney who was offering the opening statement said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorn. That was literally a part of the, the, the opening statement of the defense. So they are very much leaning into that. And I got to tell you, that's a dangerous defense to go with in 2021, maybe pre-2017. Yeah, had a strong I agree. Effect. But in 2021, to be going at that route, you're kind of coming a little culturally inept. And I remember thinking that, you know, whenever I kind of was listening into and reading about the opening statement, not an effective statement, something I certainly wouldn't have said, I think even pre-2017, but certainly not now. And then, facts. oh, go ahead. No, facts. I totally agree. Um, there's a way to do it. I don't think that was the uh, best way to do it. Um, you know, again, as you pointed out, I represent one of the victims and I can tell you she's far from a groupie uh, and definitely is gonna have some long-term effects psychologically. And I think one of the things on that point too, I, I'm just you know thinking of how, how people are perceiving it too. It's like the women, some of the women were okay knowing that he had other women, that there were other women there. They were okay with knowing that his wife was in that main house in Olympia Fields and they were in this other area of the house that didn't seem to you know give them any kind of uh, I don't know, just hesitation or anything like that. Nina, that was kind of crazy to hear about that. Like they, you know, all these women coming and going, the, the wife is in there. Nobody seemed to mind. Yeah, it was, it was definitely crazy to hear about. And I think like, you know, it's, it's one thing, this is, this is not the court of public opinion, right? So like we can have all the opinions we want to have about, you know, were these women smart in these choices they had that they made, you know, to, to go into his space? Right. Probably not the greatest decision making, you know, but then at the end of the day, like, if you want to have that conversation, there's so much more that goes into that. Like, you don't know about these women's histories. You don't know what they went through as children. You don't know the trauma they faced. Like, you don't know what they were running away from, but, but that's not what this is about at the end of the day. So like, we're not going to dig into all that because that doesn't matter. Right, exactly. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about R. Kelly and all of the legal maneuvers he went through to protect himself. Some people say he's illiterate, he can't really read, he can't really write, and yet there were all kinds of non-disclosure agreements and paperwork and things like that that he had in place 
for all of these various, or most of these various encounters. We're going to find out what our panel has to say about that when we come back. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Don't go away. Hey, what up, y'all? This is Lloyd, the King of Hearts, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people only on Hot 9-7. You dig? Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about the R. Kelly case, explaining it, going through the big issues that have been there since day one. What's the truth? What's defense? What's made up? Who's telling the truth here? That's what we're getting into with our panel. Joining me, Nina Rouhani. She's Billboard's R&B and hip hop reporter. Nina, great to have you with us. Thanks, Lisa. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Also with us is Charles Tucker Jr. He's a criminal defense attorney, partnered with the Tucker Moore Law Group, and also a former sex crimes prosecutor. Charles, great to have you with us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also joining us, Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal criminal defense attorney and managing partner with Hamilton Clark LLP. Phil, great to have you with us. Lisa, thanks for having me. Thank you. Phil, one of the things I heard in court, which I was kind of surprised at, I mean, I, was when they would go to, when women, when guests, everybody was called guests, when the guests would go to R. Kelly's Olympia Fields, I would call it, it sounds like an estate, basically, where you, you go in, before you would get to get onto the actual property at the security gate, you had to sign a like an, an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement that you wouldn't take pictures or wouldn't talk about whatever was going on. I don't know what exactly was in it. And then you'd have to produce a driver's license or government ID. And if you didn't have one, they would have they would take a, a Polaroid, a picture of you right there. What do you make of those kind of precautions? I mean, as it comes across in the trial, that's the one area where when you're trying to go that this is a one-off type of situation in terms of each individual relationship with each woman, this is a bad fact, right? If I'm R. Kelly's lawyer, only because that does kind of sound a bit organizational, right? That kind of sounds almost like policy handbook in terms of coming on to the R. Kelly criminal enterprise estate in Olympia that ultimately you have to have your picture taken, you have to have ID, like these are policies and procedures that most people that just kind of have individual relationships don't have. Now, that being said, you know, as Nina so eloquently described in the, in the other segment, R. Kelly's not your typical person. This person is an R&B hip hop god over the course of the last 15 years. People at that level of the entertainment industry always have to worry about lawsuits. They always have to worry about, you know, sometimes in Charles speak to this. Shakedowns, right? Yes, they, they have to worry about wrongful lawsuits at times, right? And to the extent that you want to protect yourself from liability, particularly on the civil end and on the criminal end, it's not uncommon for, you know, entertainers to have those types of NDAs, right? So it kind of cuts both ways, but definitely, I think, with the inherent allegations that we've been hearing all around, just that allegation, it does make it a little tougher for R. Kelly to argue that this wasn't organizational in nature when, you know, at the end of the day, you have policies and procedures to come on, you know, to your property, you got to fight back against that, you know? Right. And then that presents a different thing. But Charles, in, ter in terms of a lot of the big entertainers, there's there's some very famous hip hop stars now with bodyguards that after the, after the show, they're at the hotel, the body the bodyguard is outside the hotel room door. Any woman that comes in, they ask for their ID because they want to make sure they're not underage, take a picture of it, take a little video on their phone of the, of the uh, woman saying, my name is such and such. I am, you know, X number of years old, and I'm coming into this room willingly to, you know, see, you know, X, Y, X, Y, and Z. That's very common. I've witnessed it, Lisa. I, I can't disclose where I was to witness it. It does go down. 
What's interesting though, and I think to, to Philip's point is the whole nature of it in this setting, you know, as, as a prosecution sets it up, you know, this is not just a person trying to, you know, kind of look out or defend himself. No, this is a person that makes it part of their practice, right? It's, it's standard MO and this is what's going on here. It's an enterprise set up to ensnare women and these documents are now a weapon uh, that is being used against them to bring them in and being able to then become victimized at the hands of our killer. So it's not a defense, you know, as, as uh, Philip was pointing out. Yeah, in, in a traditional setting, you know, in, in my line of work and a lot of my employment cases that, you know, I'm facing these NDAs a lot of times. But in this instance, when again, it's, it's done in a systematic way and it's repetitive. And then you have the need to do it uh, so I guess silently in some instances, I think it, it, it becomes chilling and you don't want to think that a piece of paper is going to be used to insulate him from these, you know, heinous acts. Definitely. Yeah, I will say as somebody who's navigated the music industry as both a music writer and as an artist myself, like this was the least weird thing to me out of everything I heard. <laughs> I was like, okay, like, Facts. You maybe we'll find NDAs, like whatever, you know, like that to me felt like the most normal thing because, you know, like even I, I was at an event recently for somebody and <laughs> um, at that event, like somebody was, some person was like taking little selfie videos and you could see said celebrity in the background, the security guard snatched that phone right out of that person's right. hand, deleted the pictures, went to the deleted folder, wiped that out and handed their phone back to them. Like they don't play games. Mm -mm. So to me, that was the part where I was like, all right, like that can be explained away a little bit. Right. But you know what's the crazy? The Polaroids were weird though. That I will say. <laughs> what, what, here's what's crazy about that though. And, and sure people be familiar with this saying, what do they always say? Don't make a federal case out of it, right? And so even though this is pretty customary in terms of the music industry, when you're on trial with federal prosecutors, the way that they can take the most mundane, yeah. normal, just this is not an issue type of fact and turn it into the linchpin underlying the conviction, yeah. it's scary when you're an attorney and you have to go in there and deal with that. It's fine right. when we're in an industry and we're consulting clients on NDAs, but when you're on federal trial, and they're building the blocks of this case, which is uniquely crafty, but nevertheless, right. one that could succeed. That's a bad fact. I'm just that's being frank. Fact. And it's one that I would have to spend yeah. a while in my closing, the way that we're talking about it now, taking that fact away from, because it's a big linchpin, I think, mm -hmm. underlying this is, this is an enterprise, you know? Well, what about this whole issue of, of R. Kelly that he can't read and he can't write? Obviously, he can write music and he can make songs and he can make millions of dollars and, and, and do all of that. Nina, do you buy that? So I had a conversation. That, like, his handlers doing all of this, uh, you know, organization and that. Yeah. I had a chat with one of his lawyers who basically told me that he can write phonetically. So like the word where, like, where are you? And the word where, like wear clothes, like he just writes those things the same, like how he hears it. So like, that's what he said to me, which to me is different than, I don't know what the official definition of illiterate is. But to me, being able to write things out phonetically is different than being illiterate. So I definitely think that they're trying to push this as far as they can use it. Because what I think, because, you know, one thing that we talked about was like the, the, the best defense here is that these women are groupies. 
to me, what sounds to be the best defense is this guy didn't know what the hell was going on. That like, you know, can I say that on the radio? Is that yeah. okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. So their, their sort of spin was like, yeah, that he didn't know what was going on. That like, he's this illiterate guy. Like all these people were working over him, taking his money, doing this, doing that. Like that to me seems like another way, you know, that it's being spun. Charles, what about the, you know, the, the statute of limitations? Because like a state case, it's like there's a complainant, there's a, there's a victim, there's the person that's arrested for that particular crime. It seems like it's different in the federal thing because you have cases going back to, you know, years, more than 20 years ago in this. Right. But state, you got clear lines of, def of defense, right? So defense knows, okay, the act happened at this time. And then it, you know, they're charged here. Case has to go to trial, right? It's clear cut. You know, in the federal courts, it's pretty. You know, now you get into some murky waters, and I know Philip can can appreciate that, right? Because now they start to use different statutes um, in in crafty ways sometimes. And you know, well, it's an ongoing act, and you know, there are multiple parts to it. And then, you know, to again to Philip's point. That's where you then have to preserve the record and you challenge it and said, no, no, you know, there has to be a cutoff point, you know, uh, you know, because you see, you see, you saw that with, uh, I think, with the Bill Cosby case, you know, a lot of the, the prior ca cases could not Good come point. in. It's like, wait, no, there's no way. And then they finally, you know, found a way to, to get it done. So I, I think that's, you know, where I think the rubber is going to have to meet the road at some point where some of those uh, allegations and, and the time that it occurred uh, may not fly in the end, you know, when everything's said and done. Um, but that that's going to be, I think, the, the where the record needs to be preserved the most. All right. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about the R. Kelly case. We'll be right back. Yeah, 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 salute. This is General Steele from Smith & Wesson. And right now you're listening to Street Soldiers with your girl, Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people. Only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about the R. Kelly case with our panel. Joining me, Nina Wuhani. She's a reporter, hip-hop and R&B reporter for Billboard. Nina, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Thank you so much. Also with us is Charles Tucker Jr. He's a criminal defense attorney and partner with Tucker Moore Law Group. He's also a former sex crimes prosecutor. Charles, great to have you with us. Pleasure to be here, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Also with us is Philip Hamilton. He's a criminal defense attorney and managing partner with Hamilton Clark LLP. Phil, great to have you with us. Lisa, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. All right, Phil, I want to start with you. We heard about Aaliyah. Aaliyah's name, may she rest in peace. It's been about a little over 20 years now since since she passed away. Um, she actually came on Street Soldiers on the radio show, was one of our first first big celebrity guests that we had at Hot 97. Um, in, in terms of this, is there no statute of limitations in these federal cases? Like they can bring in alleged crimes going back no matter how far? I mean, I, I would never say generally, yes, that there's a, you know, no statute of limitations, because that, that's not the correct answer. However, when you're dealing with a racketeering case, right, this is where the government got super crafty in terms of bringing these charges against R. Kelly, because it opens up the door, right, for those matters to be brought up as evidence in trial, even if ultimately, okay, he's not necessarily being charged for like the underlying offense of marrying an underage girl, right? He is nevertheless still being charged with the bribery, 
um, of the Illinois Department of you know Public Works official or whoever it was that issued the fake, um, the fake ID, ID. Right, 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 right. So he's, he, he is being charged for that. But the reason why they're able to do it is because, again, this is an ongoing enterprise, right? That up until two years ago, as far as the, uh, you know, the government is concerned, was still running, right? right? So they can bring these charges in because the lapse and end of the enterprise is still within the statute of limitations for a racketeering count, right? So they can bring up all that stuff from 94, 95, 96, as long as it's a part of the ongoing enterprise. That's how they got so crafty in this case. Wow. Nina, in terms of the, uh, what, what did we learn in court about the, the whole Aaliyah episode that maybe we didn't know before too? So that was definitely, for me, at least like the hardest day of court was, was the Aaliyah stuff. I'm a Detroit girl, born and raised. So, you know, I, I love Aaliyah. So that was definitely crazy to listen to. Um, basically, they had Demetrius Smith on the stand, uh, who was, you know, who's known R. Kelly for most of his life and worked with him as a tour manager and on just on the management side in general and, and just was alongside him. And he sort of, you know, gave the whole story top to bottom. Um, Aaliyah, you know, met R. Kelly through her uncle, Barry Hankerson, who was also R. Kelly's former manager. Um, you know, Demetrius Smith and R. Kelly traveled to Detroit, uh, to meet Aaliyah because Barry wanted Aaliyah to sing for R. Kelly. And so, you know, Aaliyah was 14, I believe at the time. And so they came to her home, to her literal childhood home and, and she sang, she was shy. He was saying, and, and finally R. Kelly played the piano and kind of loosened her up and, and she sang for him. Um, and you know, the rest is a really dark history. Um, and, and, you know, he, he talked about how he, they asked him like, you know, would they spend time alone together? And, you know, Demetrius Smith was unwillingly there. He actually, uh, pled the fifth to which the government offered him immunity, which, you know, he can't plead the fifth anymore. So right. he was not trying to give that testimony, but, you know, every opportunity he had to try to sort of avoid a question or make a crack a joke, even on the stand, um, he did it you know he was not willingly there but the part to me that was the most sort of it, it got me was when and even R. Kelly when he was sitting there he had his eyes closed he knew what was coming was when the government asked Demetrius Smith what Kelly said to him on the plane on the way back because according to Demetrius Smith he didn't know that Aaliyah was pregnant until they were on the plane and he said you know Demetrius Smith choked up and said, I don't want to talk about Aaliyah without her parents here. And finally he said, you know, R. Kelly said, Aaliyah, man, she's pregnant. And that was the nail in the coffin for that one. And so it, you know, to me, what I want to say, because I think it's, it's tragic that Aaliyah's music coming out is timed with this because it's just not fair that, that the beauty of what she created is being overshadowed by this case. And I don't know if this was a deliberate move, by Barry Hankerson to try to capitalize off the press or what, but it's a really weird coincidence if that's all there is because there's so much to her, you know. There's oh, she no. has a laundry list of accomplishments, Absolutely. and it's a shame that we're not we're not you know we're not being able to focus on that and on what she's contributed to music, to fashion, to film because we are you know right now fixated on this case. And, and, and time. Charles, Charles, what about the Aaliyah piece to this? It, it is, and I'm, I'm glad you said that, Nina, because I really feel like I, I, I feel the same way. Well, yeah, I, I totally agree with uh, Philip's point. I think, you know, as a defense attorney, when I look at it, you know, as a former prosecutor, you know, I'm happy I have the RICO statute uh, to my 
uh, arsenal, right? Because it gives us the ability to be able to even have this case. Because without it, I, I don't think you get here. Mm. But you know, you don't you don't even get here. These charges don't exist. This case would be non-existent. Um, but then again, I go back to the way it's been traditionally used by the government, and to see them, you know, use it in such a way uh, that they're using it, you know, in in this case, you know, I, I don't know if I'm a big fan of. Um, because then it opens the door for other cases, you know, and, and you know, I, I, that's where, you know, the, the rights, people's rights, uh, you know, their constitutional rights, uh, I believe in some sense of being violated when you start giving the government expansive powers to well, now. No, I mean, if you can pull, go back, back that far. Phil, what, what about in terms of you know, a lot of people thought, I think it was 2008, 2009, when there was the case in Chicago with that horrible video, you know, I, I forget what the exact charges were, but he beat that. Everybody thought he was going to be found guilty. There was even testimony in court of, of one of the young women going to the trial, the actual trial to try to meet, to, to meet R. Kelly. Mm -hmm. But what about the, um, you know, and the jury didn't, you know, didn't buy him. How, how significant is a and it's hard for us because you know you're, the public and, and media are in separate rooms watching the trial remotely, and the the so you can't really see the jury because they're in a completely separate room and see see what their reactions are. But and um, a lot of people are saying, well, what about the parents? That these are these are very young people, teenagers. Where's the parents? Does that help create reasonable doubt, or what impact does that have? That that idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it creates something. I don't know if it creates reasonable doubt, um, you know, because in, I think to me, that's the, the tragedy in all this is because, you know, where are the parents? You know, where, you know, I don't care if it's a single mom or a single dad, you know, the involvement, the nexus between knowing what your child is doing, knowing where they're going, knowing who they're associating with, who they're communicating with is at the heart of all this, right? Then in some instances, they condoned it. Uh, they in, encouraged it, you know, do you necessarily want to, uh, you know, give your child to an alleged abuser? And in some instances, I, I guess the answer is yes. And, you know, the interesting fact is, if he was just a normal Joe, would they be doing the same thing? And of course, the answer is no. no. So exactly. then, then at the heart of it, Lisa, then money is the root of it. And you know they say money is the root of all evil. So there you have it. Phil, what is it? What does this case say to you in terms of because you you've gone up against these federal prosecutors in New York? What does this case say to you in terms of the justice system and, and concerns that people have about people being targeted because of their celebrity status for things that are going on or might be considered consensual in other arenas? What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts. You know, they angle back to, I think, what Charles was talking about earlier in terms of just being a little bit worried about what this case could mean for like the expansive governmental powers, right? Because if you can now start taking just people in and of themselves, right, and using this R. Kelly case as a precedent, let's say that ultimately, you know, he goes down, let's say that the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, you know, upholds the conviction, you know, what that can really mean is that like you, Lisa, or Charles, or Nina, like, anything that we do in our life, and I'm not saying that we do anything wrong, but I'm just ultimately saying like you as an individual can now be prosecuted as an entire organization, right? Like as if you're the mafia or as if you're some illicit organization um, singularly, 
just for maybe some bad acts that you've just done in and of yourself, that's a dangerous place to live, right? And so I'm not necessarily saying that like R. Kelly's case doesn't fall under the gambit. I'm not saying that. Maybe it does, right? What I am saying is that even if ultimately he loses, we ultimately could lose just by virtue of the fact that now the government will have that much more power to bring these kinds of charges. And when the federal government is coming after you, um, it, it's just a place you don't- They have an unlimited you. budget. They have an unlimited Correct. budget, right? Correct. There's just no end to the money. Nina, final, final word, do you think there's anything we can learn from this case or that observers can learn from this? I mean, I think a big takeaway, and I think this is right now a big takeaway for the R&B and hip hop community is basically just like how common some of these things are, like maybe not to the extent of which they're accusing him of, but just how common it is to have these really blurred lines when it comes to interactions with women yeah. um, yeah. in all areas of, of the um of the music industry and, and even males, because that's what we had in this case. Right. But I think it's really causing people to, to kind of open their eyes because, you know, people are scrutinizing his collaborators, other artists who were involved with him throughout those years. Um, and, and most recently, Drake. <laughs> um, so I think the, the biggest takeaway for, for that and for us right now is just, you know, this is something that's been going on for a long time. That's way more common than it needs to be. And what are we gonna do? Nina, this is like the Harvey Weinstein moment for hip hop. Absolutely, our, right, hundred like percent. It, it's that moment where, like, moving forward, nothing is the same. Nothing right. is the same, and if you allow it to be the same, you'll be sitting exactly where R. Kelly is right now. Right, and then also too, I think the other thing too that was kind of like a big wake up call, call too is there were a lot of witnesses that were up there. They were going, "I did not want to be here." Like when the feds tell you, "You've got to, you've got to show up." You yes. Show up. Yeah. Charles, right. You got to like. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, go, and in oh, fact, I'm sorry, I'm busy that day. Right. No. No. There's no. You're busy. You know, like I said, <laughs> some of them had to be compelled to be there. You know, I, I know of one at least that had to be compelled. And it's funny. It's like even after all that you know, what happened to you, you had to be compelled to be there. But again, but that Charles, goes that's, that's that power. I mean, I, I've had those cases where clients are like, oh, this person's not coming in, that person's not coming. In. Yeah, maybe in state court, they would. Right. Okay. They're right. coming in here because they don't have a choice in federal Absolutely. court. Once they're compelled, they'll be here. So don't be yeah. thinking that your case is going to ride on this person not showing up. No, sure. They'll be there. Oh. Exactly. Okay. I want to I want to thank you for being with us for this episode of Sweet Soldiers. Before we close the show, I just want to say to all of the females and and males in some cases, but the the far greater number of sexual abuse and sexual assault victims are women, are females, are young girls. You have a right to be heard. There are new laws in most local police departments and most district attorney's offices. There's helplines. You can get help. You can get counseling if you don't want to pursue a criminal case. Um, if you do, there's support for you. There's different procedures now than there were back in the day when a lot of these allegations against these women happened. To the women in the music industry, some of whom have told their stories on this very show, stay strong and hopefully women will be accepted and allowed to pursue their creativity without the constant threat of sexual overtures and sexual pressure and that type of thing. And uh, I think the industry and the music will be a whole lot better too. Anyway, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Charles Tucker Jr. Great to have you with us again. Phil Hamilton, thank, thank you so you. much for being with us. And Nina Ruhani, first time on Street Soldiers. We appreciate yes. it so hey. much. Thank you. <laughs>
see you at uh, Cabin Plaza West one of these days. Um, <laughs> guys. Hopefully not on the witness stand. <laughs> But you know, we've got, we got two really good lawyers here that can, that can hey, help, help you yeah. Call. <laughs> yeah, drop your number in the chat. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Sweet Soldiers. I'm Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace, love, and justice for all.